one week from tonight. She's young, beautiful, successful, and has everything to live for. But someone wants her dead. Hello? Lauren Hutton, David Burney, and Adrian Barbeau star in a chilling tale of suspense and terror. A twisted maniac is at large. Can he be stopped before it's too late? Someone's watching next Wednesday on NBC. Welcome, everyone, to episode 16 of the Seat Struck Movie Podcast. Uh, my name is John, and joining me today is my co-host, Quinn. Hey, guys. How's it going? And that's it. No Curtis today. We're Curtisless, but uh, hopefully we'll have him on next week. Uh, thankfully, though, Curtis, while he's not here today, he was kind enough uh, to watch the film. The topic of today, he actually added all of his notes and, and some of the stuff he watched. So when we get to uh, uh, giving our review and also talking about what we watched this week, I'll, we'll be sure to uh, mention his notes and, and he can, he'll share uh, what he talked about. Uh, today is November 20th. It's a beautiful, well, cloudy, beautiful, but cloudy uh, Saturday morning. Uh, how are you doing, uh, Quinn? We were just chatting a little bit before the show. Uh, having a good uh, start to your day so far? Yeah, yeah. So far, it's pretty good. Uh, just enjoying the Saturday, watching the mm. soccer, getting the, getting the day started. So yeah, it's all good. Are you watching? Uh, I didn't check soccer. Is Canada playing? Because I know they 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 won recently against Mexico, right? So they they're kind of a wagon team. They've really yeah. They're quite a bit. Uh, oh, I think it's the best Canada side I've ever seen. Um, yeah. But they're I think they're playing. Uh, I think it's a couple of weeks yet until they play again. But uh, we're looking good. So if we keep it up, we might be in the World Cup. I don't want to yeah. jinx it. Yeah, and I just want to give a, a special shout out as well. It's my it's uh, my fiance's birthday, Natalie. I know she's watching or listening to this podcast, so uh, happy birthday uh, in, in the future. <laughs> and uh, we got some fun plans tonight, so it's going to be good. Uh, so today, th thank you, thank you. Uh, so for, first of all, of course, we're actually, uh, today we're kind of going back into the swing of things. Of course, we spent a lot of October. We did a ton of spooktober horror movies that we uh, chatted about. So um, if you haven't listened to all of our episodes are backlog. Really recommend you listen to those. Some really fun discussions. Of course, you and, and Curtis talking about Silence of the Lambs. We talked about a bunch of stuff. Midsummer, The Descent, uh, tons of films. It was a lot of fun. And um, But however, of course, we still have to plug away, continue through our, our watch series. And of course, we're, we're happy again to get back to our, our, our beloved John Carpenter um, this week on our fourth entry of this watch series. And, you know, this is, of course, we're now in the year 1978. John Carpenter, of course, uh, released previously Assault on Precinct 13, an incredible movie. I mean, we talked about it ages ago. I love that movie. It's a sick movie. And that really put him on the map, of course. Last episode, we talked about how that got the attention of some larger producers and got him involved into talking about and directing and getting involved with writing the script of Halloween. So we spent a lot of time on that episode. However, this one's interesting because this kind of straddles Halloween. So this is coming out after this movie actually was produced and shot and written uh, before Halloween was made. However, it wasn't released until November 19, I'm uh, sorry, November 29th, 1978, uh, roughly about a month after Halloween came out. So this was like, you know, John Carpenter releases Halloween. He's now like the guy in horror. And this one comes out a month later, I guess, almost like establishing him. If you wanted to co compare him to uh, like a more modern director, like kind of like the Mike Flanagan of that time, like this author who's just releasing horror and getting quite a bit of buzz. Uh, so this wasn't this one's that was actually a made for T movie TV movie that aired on NBC, as mentioned, in November 29th, 1978. Um, of course, we've kind of moved away a little bit from this. So if our younger audience might be like, what's like a made for TV movie? But this was a big phenomenon, of course, through the 
70s, even through to more recent years. I feel like now we've kind of moved away from this era of era of like made for TV movies because now everything's on streaming services. So it's like and you could have a movie on Netflix. It's it's like any other movie, especially now with studios releasing everything on there. But like made for TV movies used to be like an event. They were marketed as like stay tuned Saturday night, a movie. And it was very exciting. So um, you could see a lot of the the kind of production values in this is like very obviously made for TV, like it's shot in like a four three dimension. It feels like you compare this to Halloween. Halloween is like a huge widescreen panorama, big vistas, even though it's also quite a low budget movie. Um, this one certainly has a little bit more of a standard like television set vibe to it. And uh, yeah, so this was a really cool one. Um, of course, it actually, when it was produced, this had a working title called High Rise. Uh, you know, it takes place in a pretty tall building. Uh, Carpenter was hired by Warner Brothers. Um, so in 1976, he started working on the script of this movie. Um, and he actually based it on a true story about a woman in Chicago who was like stalked. So he kind of based it off like a true, a true story, which I thought was interesting because like watching this movie, I mean, uh, before we get into it, we could talk sort of generally our feelings on this movie. It was a lot more like kind of mundane than I was expecting. Like a lot of we were just chatting about before the show. A lot of the first half of this movie is it's kind of just establishing plot. A lot of like phone calls, a lot of just kind of mundane things, weird interactions and and weird and weird moments that, you know, it's not overtly terrifying in the beginning. And then it really kind of starts to pick up uh, towards the second half. What did you think? Yeah, no, for sure. Like, uh, it reminded me of uh, Rear Window and a little bit of Vertigo, actually, too. Like, mm -hmm. definitely had some Hitchcock vibes. Um, I liked, I sort of liked how, um, like, personal the woman character, uh, what's her name again? I can't remember her name. Oh, Lee? Yeah, yeah. Or Lee? So, Lee, yeah. <laughs> so, Lee, um, yeah, no, I just liked how, like, she would talk to herself, sort of, like, almost reassuring. Yeah and sort of like talking her through things but it made you feel like you were almost there with her and um yeah just a, i don't know uh really interesting way of filming but i could tell i mean from the opening shot i, I just knew it. it's very obviously a carpenter film yeah um, yeah certainly even, the style, even with yeah. the tv yeah even with the tv made or whatever um yeah and and i definitely thought that it had a uh almost a tie into like ha halloween a little bit like, I think mm -hmm. he might have learned some things that he put in Halloween. Yeah, I, I, I would be inclined to agree. Yeah, like, I think there's a lot of, you know, it's it's a it's a different shot movie, of course, Halloween with its, like, you know, better production in terms of its camera work and, and cinematography and just sort of the general set design. Like, this is very much taking place in a lot of closed sets, like claustrophobic rooms moving around from room to room, a little bit outside, of course, but a lot of mostly interiors. And Halloween's a lot more outdoors, like bigger houses. It's out in like, you know, filmed in Pasadena, big uh, houses like that. But we, we can see a lot of that in terms of sort of the, the type of kind of style of, of horror it kind of focuses on and, and kind of focusing on a lot of like mundane things in, in the shot itself, where it's not like going for like a big, scary, shocking like you know pop-up scream it's just kind of establishing kind of a mood and dread and i think this movie uh does a little bit of, of that as well too um it's cool and also of course lee michaels played by the great lauren hutton who's a you know a great actress great model and actually um kind of funny because i think lee like a lot of his characters in these movies are named like lee or lay like i think lee was in um assault on precinct 13 and and other carpenter movies i don't know what what draws him to that name uh, for his characters uh but yeah anyways carpenter himself of course um uh, you know, worked in this movie, spent three months writing it, working on it, 
um, you know, later, eight months later, um, Warner Brothers said, you know, they wanted to do the This Is TV movie and, you know, Carpenter jumped in. And of course, this came out, but this was worked on before Halloween. So at the time, Carpenter wasn't like a big movie star in that business yet. You know, he was still kind of a director for hire. Um, this was shot in 18 days, which is pretty impressive because it's, you know, it's only about two and a bit weeks and it's, it's pretty intricate, I think. And, you know, Carpenter himself said, you know, he had some control over it. You know, he was able to shoot only what he wanted, you know, and he had a lot of control over this. Um, of course, um, we've got other cast in this too. Adrienne Barbeau playing Sophie, who we're going to talk about because I really think she's an interesting character. Of course, Carpenter working with uh, Adrienne Barbeau. That's where they met. And of course, famously, they got married. So they were married in 1978. And of course, Carpenter's oldest son, Cody Carpenter, is, is her son as well, too. And that started a kind of a, a partnership between him and her. And she's been in a lot of some of his other movies. Of course, next one, The Fog. And uh, of course, An Escape from New York as well, too. So um, cool to see her in this kind of starting movie and meeting him as well, too. Um, a couple of a little uh, notes as well, too. Um, the television station that uh, Lee works at, it's named K... J-H-C. So the last three letters, J-H-C, is a little wink to, uh, you know, John Howard Carpenter, his full name, which I thought was pretty fun. Um, and so this was finished in 1978. Like, I, I think it's a pretty impressive effort. And, you know, it's kind of cool that you brought up the fact that this is sort of like Halloween, because Carpenter himself said, you know, two weeks later, like after he started working, this, this movie came out, he started working on Halloween. So it was kind of like a continuous process of like filming and working on this and then transitioning to Halloween. So he said that a lot of the techniques in Halloween uh, were stuff that he actually kind of thought of and, and worked and worked on when he was working on Someone's Watching Me. And kind of remember, if you remember back on that Halloween episode, the way we kind of described it, you brought up, I think you brought up the fact how they would like, you know, it was filmed in like May. So they're like gathering leaves and, and filling yeah. up bags and like setting up sets. Like it kind of has like kind of a, a traveling circus type feel to it. Uh, you know, a lot of it's a low budget. A lot of the crew and cast is involved. And I think likewise in this one, too. And you can kind of see that energy from this movie kind of transition um, into that one as well, too. Um, yeah. And it's 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 pretty interesting too. the movie. You know, the, the kind of just to kind of high level, give the, the story a little bit. Lee Lee Michaels, who's our main character. Um, she's the plot. The story is she's moving to uh, Los Angeles from New York City. She's in this new big city where she has this new apartment, you know, now in LA, that's probably like a $5,000 rent or something that like gorgeous apartment that she's in. And oh my God, it's so seventies, like the interior with all the rugs and the, the cream and whites everywhere. It's and the brass on, on all the fixtures. It looks so, so seventies, so gaudy, but I love that style. So it's, uh, it's pretty fun to see. Of course she lends this job directing at, uh, as a, like on this television set. Um, I guess, um, and that's of course where she meets, uh, her coworkers, including Sophie. I really like Lee and, and you're saying how like she's constantly kind of talking and stuff like that. It, the banter with between, you know, her kind of her own monologues and like her own personal dialogue. And also when she meets Sophie, it reminded me a lot of like Lori and her friends in Halloween, where it's a lot of like kind of snarky banter. You know, her friends are kind of like in, in Halloween, like Lori's friends are kind of like making fun of her. And like it felt like really natural. It's like how teenage teenagers talk to each other it's a lot of like jovial kind of back and forth and you know not not really trying to build that much offense but a lot of that type of of and a lot of self-deprecation as well too and uh, we see a lot of this in, in this movie too at least being like very funny with her kind of thoughts and feelings and um, it, it's, it feels very much like kind of like Joss Whedon like Buffy style and like um, you know Buffy's like one of my favorite series so it's, it's fun kind of seeing that type of uh dialogue together and i think sophie's character is really interesting in that she's actually le a lesbian you know she's an out out and about lesbian and the movie actually directly mentions that when i think uh she says like uh, you know she asks her a little bit about her personal life she's like oh my partner and you know talks about that 
uh, pretty ahead of its time. Like, you know, this is 1978 and I made for TV network film. Like to see a character like that is, uh, is pretty interesting. And uh, it was cool too, because uh, her, her and Sophie, like they talk a little bit about like their background and, and their, and, and their involvement. And it, it actually gives like real depth to their characters. It's not just a, uh, you know, it's cool to see two women in, in this movie, you know, interacting, and get along. And I was watching this with my fiance, you know, she was like, Oh, this movie has like good women in it, like talking and like, and like it's written very well. And there's that great scene where the other, the male coworker pops up and he's just like hitting on her. He's like, let me take you out to lunch or whatever. She's like, no, no, no. <laughs> the guy like won't stop. I think the movie really does a great job at kind of using this whole um, kind of voyeuristic, you know, creep, you know, killer, whatever we want to define this person as, I guess, throughout the movie, we find out, you know, he does commit violence, but the movie kind of with this kind of coworker, who's just like aggressively, like nonstop, just like trying to ask her out and hit on her. It kind of establishes this like whole universe where, you know, she's just not taken seriously. She's hit on the guys are treat her really shitty, um, especially the police too, like later in this movie. What did you think about just in general, like her character and sort of the, the characters in this film? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I like what you said before, like with uh, Sophie's sort of like uh, what wind up sort of dialogue, just kind of like messing around with Lee. But like <laughs> the, the one, well, the two scenes in particular that I liked, I liked the scene with uh, Sophie. She's like looking through uh, the telescope and she's like got a glass of wine in her hand and she's kind of oh, yeah. sloppy, <laughs> but she's like, you know, just talking shit. And she's like, oh, look at this guy. And she's like looking at the different ones. And then the other the other scene I liked too was uh, when they when the three of them left the bar. So Lee and Sophie and the guy. They yeah, Paul. And yeah, I think all, it's yeah, the same. They're all like, they're like, I'm drunk. Are you drunk? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm definitely drunk. And it's just like, anyways. And then they just like go back to like talking, and you're like, okay, but um it feels yeah. like really like a natural friendship. Like I, a lot yeah. of movies just struggle to really build that where they'll have like, you know. The main character and she has like a boyfriend but the boyfriend like never interacts with like anyone and if, if they do it feels kind of weird and kind of just like shoehorned in but like the, it feels like a group of friends hanging out like people would in like a real relationship and having friends and partners like it it, yeah. it feels very intimate and you know i guess that kind of ties in the movie which is about kind of being in your own personal spaces and and being exposed and being kind of um vulnerable so yeah it was cool it, it was cool how to establish that and of course, the main, you know, Lee gets his new job, moves to L.A., new apartment. The main kind of driving force in this movie is she starts to, you know, receive these anonymous calls that, that keep hanging up. Originally, she thinks it's the guy at the, you know, she works at trying to reach out to her. And initially it is, but then it's someone else. And we we get all these shots that trans back. It's cool because we see, we see her in her apartment, you know, having a glass of wine hanging out. Um dealing with her own stuff and then you know it, it transitions back to like someone filming her and like in this other apartment with like all this camera equipment and like a big telescope you know we find out there's this anonymous foreboding stalker who seems to be you know contacting her watching her every movement um sending her letters from a company called excursions unlimited um and stuff like that of course lee meets paul i really like paul in this movie you know he's he's like the only good man in this film so therefore he has to be like her boyfriend like it's, it was kind of funny like everyone else in this movie like kind of sucks but he was really cool really fun and i think they have like a really good jovial kind of reparts you know like relationship with each other and i, I love the part near the end where they're going on their date and they and they kiss and leave and you know it, it's pretty sweet and uh and it's pretty fun and we get that little funny scare where she's like in her like kind of in her car relaxing and the guy like pops up in the window a little like red hair and you're like oh it's the killer and it's just like some random guy who's like drunk at the park or something life's tough isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 that was it <laughs> yeah and um 
of course, Lee starts to get like weird gifts in the mail too, like a telescope that's like sent to her. The person who's like doing this, it's like they want to try to like get someone that can be on their level that can like kind of try to like then scope them out. There's a little bit of like a, a back and forth that ends up happening to movie. It's interesting how this isn't just sort of like a one-sided voyeur creeping. The movie sort of shifts towards like, it's like a way to kind of defend yourself from that type of unwanted male attention. You have to become like paranoid yourself and also like sneak into apartments and then go on your telescope. But like, it's sort of like a mutually assured uh, destruction of like uh, surveillance. But uh, also I love, uh, you know, it's made for TV, her and Paul, you know, it's like, come back to my apartment. And then it just like immediately skips to him having a cigarette after sex. Like they're all like fully clothed. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, they can, they can only show so much on like a network television. Uh <laughs> And of course, Lee Lee gets more frightened. You know, these calls start to continue to come in and grow, and you know, weird stuff starts to happen in her apartment too. And it's it was really interesting because I found I found the apartment itself. It's it's it, like a lot of the scenes are daytime, but uh, it's so bright in the apartment. Like it's clearly like studio lighting. Like it's all super white, past like cream whites, super bright, like fluorescent, like bathroom, doctor's office lights, like everywhere. It's so crazy bright in that apartment, uh, which yeah. I I didn't mind too because I could see what was going on. Some of these shows and movies now, I don't know if it's because they're relying on like HDR or whatever. They're so dark sometimes. It's like I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. I have like all the lights off in my house just so I can like see things in, in the movie. But uh, yeah, it was cool. But uh, it, it kind of shows sort of limitations a little bit of the production where it's it's very obviously for TV. And also notably, this is a Carpenter film that he wrote and direct, but doesn't have a Carpenter music or soundtrack. So one of the few odd cases where he didn't do the music that he was working on. So it has that like, I don't know how to describe it, like Kojak, the Night Stalker, 70s, like TV, thriller TV, like music, where it has like these really like sweeping orchestral flourishes but it feels so kind of cheesy like uh but it doesn't really match the carpenter's synth vibe of uh any of his uh earlier stuff or even the stuff that comes so um, yeah it was kind of like it was almost like uh it had like almost like a 50s vibe to it too like just yeah. sort of like like you said like the the sudden scares like, like yeah like, yeah exactly it's like this like tv thriller it's like now back to the dragnet or something like, I don't know. It's got like this wild, like sweeping score, you know, to build dread, like before the commercial break or something, which it did. Cause this movie has all, you know, all those moments where it does that. And I, that kind of made me laugh. Cause we don't, we don't see that anymore. Now all the, like I said, all the made for TV stuff is Netflix streamable. So you don't see like movies that have notable commercial breaks. Uh, I was of course recently rewatching yeah, Stephen King's it, the the nineties made for TV movie. And you get that as well too, where it's just like, Pennywise is going like, and then it like cuts to black and then it comes back. He's like, again, like a little bit yeah, behind yeah. so you can catch up. Uh, looks yeah. weird when you're watching it uh, all together without commercials, but uh, that's just the limitations of the medium. Um, of course, Lee's getting all these creepy letters and then she actually decides to go down into the, the basement to try to find out who's doing it. And it's, it leads to like probably one of my favorite scenes or maybe the best scare in the movie where she hears like the man coming and there's this floor grate. So she's in this like dingy laundry room. It's very also like very red and green, a lot of different hues in this scene. Uh, but she's standing on this big metal grate and she has to like, lift it over and it's clearly heavy. Like she's like going like, oh, and like barely moving this thing. And you hear like a, a person coming and coming and she like squeezes into this tight space and pulls a grate. You think the guy would hear because you just hear the scraping metal like, eh! It's like, who else could it be? Uh, but the guy, we see this man who walks up and he's smoking a cigarette. I actually can't recall if 
this is the man at the end of the movie or not. Like, to be honest, I, I don't know if it's just some random guy or if this actually is the, uh, but it's a really great moment of dread where we see like above him and we can't really see his full face smoking a cigarette, drops it down. I was worried if she was like get burnt or something, <laughs> got a lit cigarette yeah, falling on her. Lands on her chest or something, right? Yeah, you know, like you're going to burn your sweater or something. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, but it's a pretty fun scare. It, you know, plays with perspective and it just, it builds a little bit of dread. So it's a, it's a pretty fun moment. Um, of course, you know, Lee continues to experience weird things. Like I said, the lights are flickering on and off. You know, she's becoming a little bit more paranoid about, uh, you know, the person who's supposedly like following her or sending her mail and stuff like that. Um, she's like flees back to her apartment after this incident. Uh, she gets subsequent phone calls. So the stalker, of course, is, you know, commenting on how beautiful and like talking about Leah's features. She now knows that it's actually the, the person somewhere living across the other side of the building she's like okay he could see me right now he just saw what i looked like you know going across my room just showering with the towel on or off can't remember uh you know and she's obviously freaked out and knows it's someone in the next building across so it's a great moment where her and you i think you mentioned earlier with sophie where she has like the, the, the glass of wine and she's like looking at all the windows they have the telescope and they're trying to actually determine uh who's in the building and you know earlier they actually she reaches out to a police officer she's like i'm getting called by this guy who's like you know saying like he can see me and he's creeping on me and god you know the police in this movie they suck and it's like maybe it's just that's sort of the, the narrative and the theme the movie's going for about you know police in general but this cop is just like well he's not doing anything wrong i'm like i yeah. don't know he's like creeping on her sending her weird stuff it's just like she basically says that right in the movie she's like does he have to like rape or murder me for this to actually be a crime like uh yeah. it's pretty it's pretty disturbing you know and we see that again at the end of the movie or close to the end where she's in the shower and the she sees the steam with the message written on the glass. Like no one believes you really. This movie is about like no one really taking her seriously as a woman who's like genuinely threatened by this, you know, disturbed, this disturbed individual. Um, so, you know, Gary Hunt, who's the, the police officer, he's pretty unhelpful, but he does say like, Oh, if he commits a crime, like let us know. It's like, okay. Um, but uh, you know, there's all these signs that she's in danger, but the cops just seem like really useless to really protect. But um they look out and they see when they're looking through the telescope at the next apartment, they see this man with a telescope. They're like, that's the guy. And it's a, it's a pretty like interesting scene. The cops come and she's like watching live as it happens. They just like take him down, arrest him. She goes to the station. Uh, but this man just denies everything. You know, he's saying like, I'm not, I didn't do it, but you know, we, we assume now it's been resolved. Uh, not so fast. She ends up receiving another letter in the mail um, indicating that it wasn't the right man. And she actually looks and sees, again, a different person on the balcony with a telescope. Clearly someone who's really like focused on setting up the telescope knows that that apartment specifically is the guy. You think at that point you could just like call the police be like, hey, I see a man like some floors up over there. Uh, but maybe, you know, she'd rather just check it out herself, I guess. But, uh, you know, yeah. she decides that she's actually that's where she kind of builds this paranoia. She decides she's actually going to go stalk out the department and see what she can find as, uh, you know, Sophie, Sophie hangs back at her place um, when she gets there you know she she sees all the equipment set up she realizes i'm being like recorded you know he's got all this stuff set up she looks back at the telescope and sees that at her apartment sophie's there the killer has come there to uh, presumably kill sophie maybe if lee had been there she would have been attacked too but you know it's sort of her decision to go and sneak in which actually perhaps saves her life but sees her sees this guy like dramatically like choking or killing sophie she's going like ah, eh, like falling back uh sophie's killed when lee rushes back to stop her it's, it's really disturbing too because she's on the phone with her or the walkie talkie and you hear her be like he's here he's gonna attack me and it's like pretty pretty shocking and lee goes back to the apartment sophie's vanished she's disappeared she's like where is the body um she goes to the police to find out what happened they say oh she had a plane ticket and she 
flew to Fort Worth that night. And otherwise the cops are just sort of like, eh, they kind of just like, they don't seem to really want to push for, it. you know, Lee obviously knows that something terrible has happened uh, to her friends. And they, uh, they say, well, they checked at the apartment. The apartment was considered empty. So clearly like they're, they're not going to investigate. So clearly like this, this, this voyeur killer stalker has quite set up this like ruse and attempt to kind of avoid everything that's going on. Um, and that's a little bit of kind of the Italian giallo style horror where there's like almost like a little bit of like a supernatural element. It's like, how did he just like banish her with no evidence without, you know, her rushing over, which probably would have taken like upwards of like 20 minutes. Like, how did he do this? So it adds a little bit of a, a supernatural element. You know, she's kind of overwhelmed by this sort of mysterious, you know, perhaps stalker with powers that we're not really aware of. And, you know, at least that sort of cat and mouse chase that kind of goes on through the rest of the film. Um, Lee eventually, of course, we should note that the stalker actually had set up a microphone. So there's a scene where we see down her desk and we see this like little device, you know, listening to her audio, what she's saying. Um, she ends up discovering it, note, realizes that the stalker has already infiltrated her apartment. And we saw that earlier, the first scene where she got into her apartment, took a shower. It's actually one of my favorite moments where the, you know, the camera kind of pans through the bathroom. And we see the killer like run across the room in the background. You're like, oh, you, you don't expect to see it that early on. You're just kind of like, it's only been like the third scene or back of the apartment. And all of a sudden, bam, there's the guy. You're like, oh, crap, he's already he's already in the apartment. And, you know, we forget that a little bit because the movie kind of takes us to different locations. But it's like this guy's already been here from, you know, from, from really like the first moment of this uh uh, this film and i love how the camera just moves about this apartment like going through different rooms panning around you know i can just imagine them having this camera on like a steady cam just like going in and out of like different hallways and stuff um it leads to a lot of kind of um, i really kind of i'm able to really ground myself when they when she has those scenes where she's you know taking a shower and like going across her apartment gathering clothes it, it establishes sort of the geography of the apartment a little bit like i know there's like a, a bedroom kind of an entrance with like a main like living room and a kitchen and kind of a main hallway that cuts through like i already kind of know the feeling of the of the room, which, you know, pays off really well later in this movie when, you know, she's there in the apartment and it's, it's such a scary moment when she finally is back at her apartment and realizes there's actually a, the killer is there in the apartment with her. And it's so interesting. I love that scene, how she like runs back and forth and, you know, goes to open the door. It's now locked. It wasn't unlocked. It wasn't locked before. We don't see this guy in the apartment. It's, it's, I think we were kind of talking a little bit before the show. Like we found, I think the first half of this movie is it's, it, I really liked it. You know, I love the characters. I love the story. Uh, but I did find it was a little slow, uh, certainly like a lot of it. And in some of the dialogue, the characters, while, while I enjoyed them, you know, that kind of Whedon-esque kind of snarky banner dialogue got a little bit grating after a while. I'm like, can anyone have a genuine like conversation in this movie? But uh, but uh, uh, certainly the second half of this movie, once we like find out, discover the apartment, once Sophie just disappeared, vanished, this movie really starts to kind of get pretty, pretty scary. What did you think? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, uh... The, the only thing though I will say like I found I found those particular parts like especially when she's in the apartment and you know she, she knows that he's in there it reminded me of scream kind of yeah it's like okay so you you have a problem with someone spying on you and you keep your curtains open like the entire movie at all hours of the night with your bright ass apartment where you can see everything inside and then <laughs> excuse me when you're um when you have the killer in your apartment you're just running from room to room to room to room like i i did like the scene though when she goes up to the phone to try to call the police but then the numbers are missing yeah that's right yeah it's like pulled out i i actually kind of missed that i was like why is it why is she looking at this phone yeah it's right yeah wow 
so yeah, no, like I like that element of it, but I was just like, it was one of those like you scream at the TV, you're like, go and hide or go do something, like you know. Yeah, it's a bit of dramatic irony, you know, like the guy's there, you don't know yet. You're like, oh, you have to like find safety. Yeah. It does a good job at like, you know, she doesn't feel like totally like like a typical like shitty 80 slasher where like the girl's like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. Like she she feels like she has agency, she's she's smart, she knows that she has to kind of like even when she enters the room, like she kind of turns her body to like know the entrances and kind of see things like she has a really good spatial awareness and kind of good sense of self-preservation but there is a little bit of element where you know you she isn't totally like an expert she's not like i know you know i'm now a badass and grabs like a you know weapon is like ready to kill whatever like she does yeah it feel it does feel very you know we see her kind of grab like mundane objects like kind of random a random rock or whatever like she there's there's sort of a a mundane sense of things where she's still relying on kind of like household items and stuff to to protect her and oh my god i love i love that final sequence because you know it's no longer a big brightly like cream colored lit stage it's like the lights are off it's dark it's nighttime a little bit of lamp lighting, the color and kind of mood really shifts. You know, what was once a place of comfort, you know, the apartment where it's very bright, very warm, friendly, this this pleasant place is now this place of, you know, you feel ter- terrified in. It's, it's you don't know if you could trust the room you're in. I, I thought the guy was like 100% behind the curtain when she's in that big living room. It's like, yeah. you know, you, you can't really trust anywhere in this movie. And, you know, good, good old God King, you know, Carpenter building that, you know, foreboding tension in this, in this final sequence where, you know, the man is there. And then of course, and also a great moment where she looks at the table and sees like the, the typed up typewritten suicide note where it's by, yeah. and it's like, you're like, holy shit. Like, you know, you know, like at that moment, like she doesn't have much time left to really protect herself. And then, you know, she's finally attacked, you know, earlier they suspect there's, it's the building inspector, the other building, his name is Herbert Stiles, he's this inspector who has access to numerous buildings um, in the city and is able to go into any room and they're like, that's the guy and we, fi- we find out it is the guy so he, he rushes at Lee and it's a really great scare actually I was watching with my fiance she was like, ah, because like, he just pops out, you know, you're not really, you're wondering when, when is this man going to emerge, she actually starts taunting him, she's just like, a scaredy cat or whatever she's giving her old spiel her old snarky buffy spiel and then you know we don't see him or even hear from him or anything there's not even the you know some of the scenes this movie we see him filming from afar you know we cut to him and this we don't even see any of him we don't know where he is um a little bit of michael myers there where it's like michael myers like we get some sequences where we see michael walk to places or we see him following laurie which gives him like some sort of actualization as like a an immediate threat in the moment but in a lot of this like we see kind of the character's gone he's vanished he's almost like a literal pair you know paranormal force kind of like michael i feel like they kind of he kind of even looks a little bit like michael with a kind of like that yeah. weird like janitor's outfit or whatever like custodial yeah. outfit like uh, we kind of see michael with that in in uh in in the halloween movie so i don't know if they just reuse the same like outfit and put like a tag or something on it i don't know but uh <laughs> but no i would have saved a bit of more money yeah no for sure but like the one thing i did like though too is i liked how like almost like reservedly was like even like when when you think that she'd be like terrified, she kind of like keeps things to herself. Yeah. Like, she is sort of like in a, in a calm manner, but, and then, you know, f- fast forward to the ending sequence where um, she's sort of getting like fed up with this guy's shit and sort of, she wants, she wants help, but she also kind of wants him to reveal herself. So like she yeah. starts smashing the windows of the apartment to gain attention towards the building. And like, that's really what this whole movie's about. Right. It's pretty much about the attention to the apartment building and and yeah. to her unit right but then like you said the the scare is like perfectly done i don't even think i've ever seen a scare like that because he actually sort of like he pops up from underneath the camera like you kind of yeah see her that's and true he kind of comes up like 
it didn't make me jump, but I was kind of like, oh shit. Like it was, it was a good one, you know? And then at that point they're kind of like uh, in like a physical, physical altercation. Yeah. And I like that you brought up like kind of her, her reactions to things because she is quite reserved and like we see her kind of you know be very confident be very like strong independent like even like you know the scenes where she's at work like her boss is kind of you know abrasive but she's kind of throwing it back at him and and you know she kind of you see her kind of build trust and and, and appeal to characters that way but we do get those moments where she's she shows moments of genuine terror where she kind of breaks down and it, it feels very you know it hits you harder because it's not like someone who's just crying at the sound of like something breaking or something you know like it it establishes his confidence and uh, yeah it's this pretty impressive little jump scare there when he pops up and you know we get that final ending where he's like trying to it's weird he's like trying to like push her off the off the apartment and it's like i was like generally like, oh is she gonna get killed like she's like hanging on for dear life that curtain must be made of fucking titanium because she's holding this like dinky curtain that she got at like ikea and it's just like keeping her up keeping her afloat yeah. um and then of course the movie ends, you know, she's getting pushed off his balcony by this would-be killer. She's desperately trying to grab this piece of the broken window that's still attached there. You know, you think if you grab that, you would just immediately cut your hand, but I don't know. She grabs it, stabs him in the back. It's almost, it reminded me a lot of, like, Michael Myers when he gets, like, the coat hanger in the eye, like, a kid yeah. who gets stabbed and all of a sudden, dramatically, like, kind of, like, on, like, on a stage play, just, like, pops up and freezes, and then does like the uh, like falls over it feels very much like a stage in it that reminded me a little bit of michael michael's uh getting assaulted and, and stabbed in in halloween and he you know he gets stabbed in the back and instantly he just freezes and goes like uh, and like collapses um the movie just kind of abruptly ends there it's not like there's not really much more to the movie um but yeah that was um it's a pretty it's a it's a fairly like short movie too i think it's roughly like an hour 25 minutes um but i gotta say that it, it flew by the pacing of this while the first half is very glacial very mundane very slow it, it was very i was i was very engaged with it and it really kind of i was surprised how much time i sunk you know watching this it it moved pretty quick i guess when you don't have those commercial breaks it allows for a for a for a much quicker watch um yeah so this was this was uh someone's watching me did you was there any other uh, notable things that you wanted to sort of note on this film because i know we I didn't go too deep in the plot. I wanted to kind of speed along, but uh, was there any other scenes that, that really stood out to you that you were really, really drawn to in this? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I really liked the the cigarette landing on her on the floor. Great. I think that that was like a cool moment of suspense. And um, I definitely liked that. And I also thought that, um, yeah, it, it was, I, I could see Halloween in it um, yeah. very much. So I definitely think that, you know maybe some of the speed bumps that he had on this film he sort of was able to like i think if we if we didn't have this i don't think halloween would have been as good i'll go mm -hmm. as far as to say that um definitely definitely uh inspired by rear window there's no doubt about it oh yeah um and uh also it had a little bit of a an assault on precinct 13 vibe a little bit like i yeah with its I, interiors, I, with the rooms, especially when it's like yeah. going back and forth for each room, when she's like grabbing things or checking things out. It reminded me of the the final assault scene when they're kind of protecting like the, you know, defend the Alamo. They're kind of boarding yeah. up their their precinct and, and getting ready. It reminded me a lot of that. And yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. I def definitely the, uh, the driving scenes as well, like just the driving around and her talking like to, uh, you know, wh whoever, Paul or whoever in the car. Like, I thought that that was very sort of assault on Precinct 13, just how it was shot and everything. And, you know, you can tell it was it was definitely a, a Carpenter film. And Yeah. Uh, I love the prop yeah. work of his stuff. Like, a lot of good attention to detail with just objects and things in the scene. Like, especially in that assault on Precinct 13, where we get the final shootout and papers are flying off everywhere. It feels like 
very, very natural. It doesn't feel like very, like, it doesn't feel like you're at like the crazy kitchen at the science center, like where it's like yeah. all fake and, you know, nothing's real. Nothing feels tangible. It feels like you're in an actual room. And I, I love that in this movie too. It's very seventies, but we get great little objects and fixtures and it feels, it feels like you're in a condo. Like it feels like you're in like an older, you know, like 60, 70 style apartment. Like it, it feels very true. It doesn't feel like sleek and kind of nondescript. It actually has a good sense of style and, and place and you're able to really uh, mark things out. And yeah, that, that was, that was, so that was someone's watching me, not somebody's watching me. That's that, uh, what a rock, Rockwell song. I can't I got that. Like, I, I think I saw uh, for Curtis's comments mentioned that and I had that song in my head. I'll probably even do that as the outro song in this, uh, in this episode. Cause I was just thinking about that the entire time. I was like thinking about this movie. Um, so this movie of course came out released um, on, on that day aired on November 29th, 1978 uh, on NBC. It was actually promoted as sort of related to a, a separate series called tales of the unexpected, even though it wasn't actually officially part of that show. Uh, but came out and was well received. Uh, Carpenter actually got a little bit of nominations for stuff. He won a, He was nominated for a 1979 Edgar Award for Best Television Feature or Miniseries. And I believe this also received some noms uh, at the Emmys as well, too. Um, a lot of people listen to this podcast are probably like, I've never heard of this movie in my life. Someone's watching me. And it's probably true because among, among fans, among Carpenter heads, this is actually considered... For many years, this was considered like the lost Carpenter film. It actually wasn't accessible, wasn't available. Um, it was very scarcely available on home video. And if you maybe back in 78 were rich enough to have like a VHS player with a recorder, you might have, or you might have recorded on various rewatches. For a lot of my, you know, especially us growing up with parents who had like, you know, VCRs and stuff like that. There were a lot of movies my parents had that they just like recorded off TV that like weren't available. I know famously my, my parents loved Christmas films. We had like a big box of Christmas movies we'd pull out every season and they had a, what was it? An American Christmas Carol starring Henry Winkler, which they had yep. on like a recorded tape. That was like the only medium they had it on until like ages later when it was finally released on DVD. I think they like ordered, imported it from like Europe or something. Like, you know, we, we take it for granted now that a lot of like these made for TV films, like they were aired and if maybe they were rerun every five years or 10 years, otherwise you wouldn't see them. So they were kind of just, you never, you never saw them. Uh, but this one was finally, uh, you know, the great old uh, Shout Factory, uh, you know, their horror uh, label Scream Factory. They released this film on Blu-ray um, on August 7th, uh, 2018. So now it's, uh, of course, available on Blu-ray. And of course, you can rent this in, on, on, online, but it is kind of hard to come by. It's not streaming. So I, we, had to, uh, we had to work around to find this film. Uh, but that was someone's watching me. So I'll get to Curtis's comments because Curtis had some feelings this film that, you know, wasn't able to express right now, but he gave his um, review and his notes. Um, what was, what was your, what was, we're going to talk about our score. What did you think of this movie, uh, Quinn? What, 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 what score did you give it? Uh, yeah, no, I thought that uh, overall it was a pretty good movie. Um, I thought the acting was decent, all things considered. Um, definitely liked the sets. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Liked the kind of, like organic friendship that they had uh, Lee with Paul and Sophie. Um, overall, I gave it a three out of five just for its, I would have given it a higher score, but I just thought the first half was like super boring and there, there could have been stuff cut out, but I mean, I mean, even with the stuff, it's still like an hour and a half long. So it's like, a, it has a fair length to it. Um, yeah. I, I just would have, if it was my movie, I would have changed a couple of things, make it less sort of frustrating for the audience, like yeah. sort of scream style. But again, like you just have to take it for what it is and uh, good movie. So three out, three out of five. Cool. But, yeah. And um, 
Uh, in terms of Curtis's score, he actually wasn't as big into this movie as, as we were. Um, Curtis said he had actually never heard of this one before. And I'm reading his notes right here. Kept thinking about that 80s Rockwell so- song, Somebody's Watching Me, much like we did too. He said, not sure what John Carpenter was thinking with this one. It's boring AF. And I stopped watching it after the first 30 minutes because it was so <laughs> boring. I think Halloween and The Thing are much more uh, better representative of skills as a master of horror. This one can stay buried in the crap barrel. Wow, damn, going hard. I won't disagree that Halloween and The Thing are better movies, though. Um, yeah, those are sure. certainly like probably Pete Carpenter or, you know, you could consider them. And those if you're going to make a top five, those would almost certainly one of those would be in the uh, in the top five of his canon. Um, uh, that's so he gave it a two out of five, which uh, that's damn. He went hard on that one. I, I I was very positive in this movie. I actually gave it a four to five, which is maybe like a little bit high. Maybe I'm more in between like a three and a half, four. But I went with a four. I really love this movie. I thought it was a huge surprise. Out of all the episodes and movies we talked about, this might be one of the biggest surprises. Like you know, um, Dark Star was fun. Like it was a quirky movie. But, you know, it was obviously like a student film. I enjoyed it just kind of, you know, for the creativity and efforts put into it. But this one was actually a genuinely like solid film. I was actually really hooked into it. The story, man, this movie is like so ahead of its time with its like women characters, you know, like an open lesbian where, you know, the whole plot isn't focused on her sexuality. She's just, that's who she is in a network film in the seventies. Um, really cool to see like the, the movies mostly lay in her, her characterization. I love how she's snarky and, and funny she was. Again, it reminded me of Halloween and kind of the snark with them, kind of Buffy style, which I really like. Um, reminded me a lot as well, that certainly, again, because this is very similar to Halloween, and you mentioned about how you could kind of see the hot, this is like a proto-Halloween almost, the way it's shot and filmed. Um, a lot of like Black Christmas style as well too, like this with the phone calls and the, you know, this, the snarky woman, like I love I love uh, Margot Kidder in, uh, in Black Christmas where she's drinking like the Labatt 50 and talking about sex and stuff, like she's so like over the top and confident and snarky and, you know, I love her in that movie and, you know, Lee has a bit of that in this movie. I thought, you know, it was a pretty kind of fun, quirky, little bit giallo styled, um, inspired, uh, made for TV movie. I love like kind of the creams and whites in this. It has such like a TV, 70s TV feeling again with that goofy music, that goofy uh, lack of Carpenter synth music. It would be interesting to see like Carpenter like rescore this movie or something. Like I wonder how that would, you know, because scores and, and music means so much to a film. I wonder how that would change the movie. I wonder if there's been like a fan who's like done like a, an edit like that. I wonder how that would how that certainly would change things, but you can certainly see like a lot of Carpenter style in it with its sort of lingering long looks, refocuses on reactions, um, looking at sweeping camera pans, looking at various room details. This does feel a lot like a proto Halloween. You know, the narrative characterization was so ahead of its time, you know, having a central character as a lesbian, not having it again, kind of like as a singular character trait or like in other movies where it's like really pornified where it's like, I'm a lesbian, therefore like I make out with Lee, you know, it's really like played up as like a, a sexy thing for men. Um, the beginning it's very glacial but i think it kind of works because i think this really does a great job at kind of this is what it's like if you're a woman being stopped by a man it's like kind of really naturalistic and it's not over the top like we don't get gory grisly murders right at the beginning kind of like you see in slashers it feels very slow kind of like like the early friday the 13th where it's like you don't really see what's happening it's a lot of reactions to come later in the movie um you know it felt true to like a lot of experiences like women have and a lot of this is sort of bound you know men and systems of power just not taking her seriously at all she's sort of just like you know, neglected. And it's sort of like the movies like plays into the idea of like having to, you know, match paranoia and suspicion and surveillance with more paranoia and surveillance and suspicion and how that can kind of, you know, that, you know, fear associated with that can kind of build into your own reaction and wanting to also surveil and, and seek out and, and, and put yourself into harm's way. It kind of flips the, 
the voyeuristic themes and motifs on its head in this. And, but yeah, and that final confrontation I thought was kind of a little let, bit of a letdown. I, you know, I love the jump scare, but it was kind of like, er, they're kind of wrestling and then he's just dusted and that's the movie. But um, it's certainly very shot well. And I think, you know, Carpenter, he, it's it's his film and you can see in story, it's characters, the way it's shot. I gave it a four to five, probably a little bit too positive just because I love the characters and the narr narr narrative of it a little bit much higher to, to kind of boost that up. But uh, I dug the movie quite a bit. I thought it was a total hidden gem big surprise overall so this was kind of think of first i think curtis gave it a two you gave it a three i gave it a four i think that's the biggest variation of scores we had to date but overall it comes together together to give it a three out of five so uh quinn you were bang on with your three out of five i think that's fair it's like remarkably average kind of middle of the road film and um i don't know if i would consider this one of the better carpenter films like i think uh, we've got some pretty great ones to come i think following this we got the fog and then from there it's like a you know, a murderer's row of like hits, like man, in the eighties, like the early to, to late eighties, Carpenter was in the zone with like the movies he was kind of cranking out and we get some really great ones coming up next, but overall it was a fun watch. I would say out there, if you like, you probably, I would guarantee like none of our audiences heard of this movie. They're like, what the heck is someone's watching me? Um, if you're looking for a movie to watch, you know, for like a Sunday night, you know, trying to work up the scary, something to kind of get back into the working day, a little scary, a little edgy. If you can find this and rent this and, and check it out, I would recommend it. I think um, you'd probably enjoy it. It was a pretty, pretty interesting watch. And for sure. engaged. Yeah. There's um, I never say this. I never say this type of stuff, but this is a, uh, and there's an exception for this movie. Um, I would love to see this movie be remade. Oh yeah, certainly. I'd love to see this be remade or put into a limited series or something, because I think, I think you could really nail it and throw in some extra elements in there and then obviously get Carpenter to do the score. But uh, no, I, I'd love to see this movie remade because I think nowadays it could be, uh, it could be a gem. And I yeah. had never heard of it, it like in before this podcast, like I had never heard of it. So um, yeah. And that's why I love the narrative narrative. Cause it's very, it feels very modern. It's like really yeah. focused on women and kind of their experience of being kind of subjected to kind of, you know, failed systems to defend them against like horrid male violence and sexuality. Like, I think you see that like most recently, like a movie like Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss where it kind of plays into kind of being gaslit and stalked. And I, I think you see a lot of kind of modern thrillers kind of going with this sort of style. It'd be kind of cool to, yeah, to see this remade and get Carver involved to do some really deep synth scores that everyone is stealing now and ripping off for all of their modern stuff that's coming off. That would be, that would be really cool to see. So let's talk about now that that was someone's watching. Let's talk a little bit about what we watched this week. Uh, Quinn, you watched some more television. So why don't you take us back to the 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 world of Twin Peaks? What did you talk about? What did you watch this week? Yeah, uh, yeah. Just I didn't watch much other than Twin Peaks. I'm on season two now, so uh, watching this bundle of weirdness unfold in front of my eyes um <laughs> no twin peaks uh pretty good show um pretty good show obviously a pretty big cult following from the 90s um i'm a big david lynch fan and i had been putting it off for a little while so i eventually just bit the bullet and decided to watch it with my wife and uh no twin peaks it's pretty cool it it's very slow but uh, for classic television sort of murder mystery, um, you got to see it. It's really funny. The acting is pretty bad, but uh, super cool music, super cool dialogue. And uh, a lot of like 
a lot of funny references, like very quotable show. Um, yeah, iconic Twin Peaks. But uh, what about uh, what about you, John? Would you watch? Oh, actually, before I get into mine, I'll just to kind of go over because Curtis actually, again, was kind enough to actually share what he watched and actually wrote up some little notes. So uh, the first thing that Curtis watched was a 1987 movie, a little cult horror called uh, Blood Harvest. Uh, this one's interesting because it actually stars Tiny Tim, you know, tiptoe through the tulips, that guy, the SpongeBob music guy, uh, or I guess Insidious. I think he's in that movie, the music in that movie, but uh, oh. he's sort of like the, the main, I guess he's the antagonist of this movie. Um, Curtis said, you know, pretty terrible movie that is slightly redeemed from the abyss by a weird performance from Tiny Tim as a creepy clown. Uh, basically, a young woman returns home, finds that her parents are missing, the house has been vandalized. And a killer is going around slashing her friend's throats. Uh, the opening scene's promising, as are Tiny Tim's scenes, but the rest is trash. So it uh, sounds like a pretty fun, schlocky movie, something that would be totally in my uh, my ballpark. Uh, the I, had, one... uh, I, I had put Blood Harvest on a Facebook group called um, Strange Strange Films or something like that. Oh, that's that. a good, yeah, Strange and Unusual Films or something. That's an interesting yeah. group. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I had seen it on Joe Bob, so I had put it on there just to, oh, hey, if anyone wants to watch a weird one, check out Blood Harvest. And Curtis saw it, and he's like, I'm going to watch it. So I'm glad he ended up getting to see it because it's uh, it's a fucking weird movie, man. Oh, have you seen it? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. That, yeah. I recommended it to Curtis. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. It, does that really describe it to a T the way uh, that Curtis said in his notes? It's just someone going Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it feels like you should check it out. It feels like a like a movie that like a bunch of like high school stoners made and it's like <laughs> it's really 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 bad and like it's really awkward like it's so bad that like like tiny tim as the clown is like he'll go up and he'll like say a bunch of stuff in like the couple's face especially the opening scene and then he's just like see you later and he just like walks out of the room and you're like okay and then like the couple's like yeah, anyways, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? It's, like, so <laughs> bad. It's, like, it's worse than, like, like an elementary school play. Like, it's really yeah. that bad. But you got to check out Blood Harvest. It's really cringy. Cool, cool. But it's, it, you got to see it. You got to yeah. see it. It sounds cool. Uh, yeah. The next one that, uh, that Curtis had watched from 2020, Riders of Justice, uh, he, this one's a Danish film, I believe. Sort of like a, a, I think it's like a thriller. He had yep. said, "I love Mads Mikkelsen and everything." He said, "You know, Curtis, it, that's his favorite actor." And he said it was a treat to see him in this one as a grizzled and hardened war veteran. Uh, he also seems at his most vulnerable in this Danish film. You know, grieving the death of his wife, trying to maintain his relationship with his daughter, and exacting revenge on the gang Riders of Justice, who he thinks are responsible for his wife's death. I'm sold. This movie sounds great. Uh, he's joined by three buffoons, which provides much of the laughs including a computer nerd who's named Eman Thaler. I, I, oh, like the cheese. I'm not very aware. I'm not uh, too into, uh, plugged into my, my French cheeses. Uh, I didn't get the plot or the Danish uh, black humor, but it's fairly original for an action comedy, very entertaining, uh, full of twists and shocking surprises too. Uh, he said, one of the finger scenes really made me squirm. You'll know when you see it. Oh, ah, if it's anything with nails, uh, fingernails and stuff like that, I hate that. But uh, yeah. that sounds interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm sold on that premise though. Um, I'm gonna have to check that one out. And I love Mads Mikkelsen too. I think he's a great actor, been in some you know wide variety of roles, you know, Hannibal Lecter himself. And most yep. recently with another round, like I think he's a probably one of the most incredible working actors today. And finally, Curtis had watched uh, the 
2021, the new film has just come out about the Velvet Underground. Um, Curtis says, I'm a huge fan of Velvet Underground, especially John, Kale, and Nico. This is a real treat for Velvet Underground lovers. Feels a bit pretentious at first, but ultimately I think captures the spirit of the band. Uh, their first four albums are some of the best ever, but unfortunately they still have an almost cult following and not many people know about them. They deserve all of the time and airplay. Lots of great archival footage, previously unheard songs, interviews with John Galen, Mo Tucker, and more. Best experience on the big screen and turned up to 11 so that Lou Reed can blow your mind and your eardrums. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got to say, I haven't, I'm not like the biggest Velvet Underground guy, but I love a lot of their songs. I think they have such a, you know, they were like just the cool, edgy, bohemian aesthetic, especially all their stuff with the involved with like modern art and pop art and Andy Warhol. And I, I love, you know, they have those distinct album covers and I, lo I love a lot of their tunes and I, and I love myself a little bit of Lou Reed as well too. Um, so that sounds like a pretty fun watch. It should be entertaining knowing their history and, you know, how involved they were in sort of the, the New York art scene and kind of the underground community there. Um, I'm, I'm excited to really check that one out. And that one I think just recently came out. So that's a, that's a new release as well too. Um, so that was what Curtis shared. Thank you, Curtis. You're listening for uh, sharing what you watched and offering your notes. Um, I didn't watch that much that myself. I watched one. I can't remember if it was you or Curtis had talked about this, the Bob Ross documentary on Netflix, Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed. Uh, this one came out on Netflix, uh, I believe a couple of months ago. It's sort of, I would. I, I saw a review online that said, this is like, won't you meet my neighbor meets like King Lear. Cause it's sort of like a lot of this movie kind of reminded me of like, won't you meet my neighbor? It's sort of like the history behind the scenes of Bob Ross. And, you know, you're watching this being like, Oh, is he going to be like a, a garbage person, you know, some kind of secret abuser. And actually based on what we see is that he's actually, you know, he's a flawed man. He's got his own misgivings and kind of, you know, just like any of us, but what we constantly see in this movie is that he was just so charismatic. I love how they touched on the sexuality. Like he is like a sexy dude. He's just like, yes, tap that, rub that, make that beautiful. Like he's very, you know, we see this coterie of like older women who are all like flocking to him as this like genteel, suave, you know, he was a very attractive, handsome man, especially the younger scenes where he's like came out of the war and he's like all clean shaven. Like he's a, he's a very charming man. Of course, um, after the war he was involved, um, he was of course really well, you know, really great artist got involved in sort of this community that was being organized by the Kowalski family this sort of production. It was like a made for TV, local TV aired like um, art instruction show. And Bob Ross really got into that. And then, you know, they met Bob Ross and they started this whole, the joy of painting the movie kind of trails. It's upbringing. The film has a kind of a, it's interviewed with various crew and family members and people who knew him, most notably his son, Steve Ross, uh, who's like a very seemingly like broken man. And we find out of course that the main drama of this film is that, there's a break between Bob Ross and the Kowalskis. And, you know, Bob Ross was very sick later in life, um, had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, passed away at a young age in the early 90s. The Kowalskis had a contract. They were business partners. They actually controlled Bob Ross's image and name. And afterwards, were able to just control the entire Bob Ross as a property. I think the movie really kind of says something to, like, how just sort of capitalism can and, and sort of the desire to control, like, family enterprises and, like, the, a name. And like, what does a name mean? How that can really like poison everyone. And I mean, a lot of the, this movie, kind of like a lot of these like Netflix documentaries are very like one-sided and like, they want you to have like a character you love and a character you hate. Like something like Tiger King where everyone's like, oh, Carol Baskin's a murderer, uh, which like, is still not confirmed. No one knows, you know, it's based on like total, uh, you know, bias sources. I, I mean, I think this movie is very captivating, you know, talking about the son who's, you know, had a fractured relationship with his father, but became close and, and based on his 
take is that his father didn't want this to happen. He didn't want the, he wanted the company to go to his son, go to his stay in the family, cared about his son's legacy and, you know, would always promote him as an artist. And that the Kowalski family that now controls the Bob Ross band, which most people don't realize, um, kind of screwed him and kind of screwed Bob Ross. And, um, you know, it is very one-sided and I think it is very, you know, convincing, but I do think it's like, okay, so if say Steve Ross took control of the brand, would anything really change? And I think there's like, that was sort of a question I had. The movie was very, you know, one-sided. And I think, you know, to its credit, I do think it makes a good case against the Kowalskis. But I was just like, what is the, what is the goal here to control your dad's name and image and him as a product? I don't know. There's still, there's something weird about it. And that whole kind of story of just how, you know, you can die and pass away and your image and whole persona can still live on and in Shia pets and in puzzles and, you know, cartoons and memes online. It's like, it, it's kind of interesting to think, you know, hundred years from now, we'll probably still see pictures and memes of Bob Ross. He'll be like this symbol or figure and it'll outlive any of this sort of immediate petty drama and squabbling. So I, I dug it. It was an interesting movie. It was a little bit just one-sided like a lot of these Netflix ones are, but it was a really captivating story. And I think I kind of went into it being like, Oh no, they're going to make Bob Ross to be terrible. But by all accounts, was a really genuine, kind, thoughtful, beautiful person who loved art, loved his family, and, uh, you know, despite his own personal foibles, was a good man. So really cool movie, and I would recommend for artists and people to check that one out. Uh, yesterday, we watched some old 90s Disney throwbacks. We watched uh, Encino Man, uh, notably the debut of Polly Shore in this movie. It's about uh, Sean Astin, young Sean Astin, who's kind of like an incel in this movie. He's like, constantly whining about how his like friend and girl next door doesn't want to like be with him and like he's got this um buddy called stony he's like this like surfer stoner dude of course it's Polly shore aka the weasel his little persona um i've never seen this movie before i knew it was like brendan fraser plays like a key man who's frozen in ice it's in encino california they unearth him and it, but i really dug it it was actually kind of funny i mean brendan fraser was totally charming in this movie like he's probably the, the best peak Brendan Fraser, like physical comedy act, like some really underrated physical comedy in this from him. And, you know, I didn't like Sean Astin's, Astin's character. I, I called him an incel. He's kind of gross and unlikable in this movie, but most of the movies actually just focuses on Brendan Fraser and the weasel, you know, and Polly Shore. Polly Shore, you know, take him or leave him. I think now people, a lot of people found him, you know, find him to be very cringy. And that's why kind of his career kind of tanked. Um, he is very cringy, but there's something really charming and affable about him, especially in this movie. He's kind, he's like over the top flamboyant. There's a little bit of like, I don't know, I wouldn't say queer coding, but like it's him wearing like pink sweaters and like going around with this like beautiful, suave, shirtless, like Brendan Fraser. And they're like hanging out with girls, but not being like too gross. Like there's a lot of bit of like gross humor, but it's, it was kind of, uh, I don't know, it was kind of affable. It's kind of silly and very 90s, of course, with its style and fashions. But I don't know, it wasn't the greatest movie, but it was actually kind of funny and charming. Uh, we also watched that uh, because it was like what to recommend next. And it was Jungle to Jungle, which I'd never seen before. So we uh, <laughs> we, we threw on Jungle to Jungle. I, I'm not the biggest Tim Allen guy. I find him kind of like, uh, I don't know. He's got like that typical like, you know, conservative dad energy. Like he's, he's funny, but he can be a little like abrasive and a little bit too abrasive at times. And, you know, this movie, he plays this kind of, it's almost like, elf like the story's almost just like elf except it's kind of reversed it's like this high-powered executive like james con and elf like goes to this like jungle island where he meets his ex he's trying to get a divorce so he can formally marry his like new girl and finds out that he's had a son that's lived in this like you know i think it's i can't think it was filmed in venezuela actually i don't know i don't know the exact tribe or anything or if it's you know this movie has like if, if you don't like your cultural appropriation this movie's not for you because this movie's chalk of like white people wearing like makeup and um it, you know native garb and of, of if it's if it's legitimate or not but uh he finds that he has a young son and it's sort of like almost like elf or the son has grown up without his dad in this like totally foreign world he doesn't he, he knows english but he's like 
dressed up like like he's like a like someone native in the jungle and goes to New York to live with his dad. And you know, the movie, it's like a lot of 90s like Disney movies. It's like fathers trying to connect with their sons. The fathers are like modern working men and they have they're divorced and like they're trying. It's like a lot of these movies, like Robin Williams and like Mrs. Doubtfire. It's about like divorced dads trying to love their children. And this movie's very much like that. I didn't really like it, although Martin Short's in it, and I fucking love Martin Short. He's so funny. There's a great moment in this. I, I don't I don't know if you've seen this movie or if you watched ages ago, but when Martin Short is kind of like losing his mind, where he finds like the fish have been like barbecued and like everything like he's just kind of like losing his mind you actually see him kind of start laughing like he breaks a bit I, he's just so he's funny as hell and i love him but uh I, I didn't really find the movie that great but i thought he was funny in it and it was kind of like weirdly edgy like the ending is like the russian mob is trying to like kill them and like it was really uh really odd uh but uh you know that's that lovable 90s racism that 90s like you know it's not it's racist but we're not being too offensive we're just like stealing everyone's culture and making fun of it you know it was kind of goofy but uh i i i thought it was watchable at the very least you know it's a great classic 90s comedy and uh yeah that was about it for me i've been watching some tv but i want to talk about that once i you know finish the show i don't want to get too far ahead um it was cool that we were able to meet and chat about uh what we watched and also someone's watching me pretty fun film uh we've got some more carpenter coming up that we're going to talk about uh not next week but sometime soon i believe up next is another made for tv movie i've been on a big elvis presley kick i've been just listening to his music just generally so it's kind of a fun coincidence that we're now talking about the uh 70s made for tv movie elvis starring kurt russell who would become a huge part of uh, carpenter's filmography and, and so many of his roles so excited to talk about that we'll also be doing some personal more personal canon films i've got one i want to chat about and i think we all do as well and you know it's getting close to the holiday season so we're thinking about maybe doing some winter themed episodes you know christmas stuff like that we're we're gonna figure it out so stay tuned for that um yeah so this was fun anything else you want to mention uh quinn on your end or anything going on with seat struck yeah uh check check out the uh instagram page uh at seat struck reviews just on instagram right now and if you're friends with me on facebook i post my re movie reviews on there uh speaking of elvis presley though you got to check out king creole okay cool i've never i've never heard of it I'll send you the trailer. That's like one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, it's a, awesome. It's like an, it's actually Elvis's favorite movie of his own. I'm also a huge jailhouse rock fan too, but oh yeah. Uh, yeah. King Creole, you got to check that out. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much all the plugs I have. Uh, what, uh, what do you got, John? Well, actually in a couple of hours, I'll be uh, recording a domestic pints only my other podcast, the beer drinking podcast. We'll be recording an episode uh, with a, uh, me, Tom, and the other Tom, Tom Hacker, he's going to be on, and we're going to uh, talk about Sleeman beer. So I picked up uh, some of the mix pack of Sleeman, so we're going to be talking Sleeman Draft, uh, Honey Lager, and uh, Cream Ale, I think. I'm trying to remember the top of my head, but uh, I haven't had any Sleeman in a while, so it'll be kind of fun to drink those. Those are like throwback to like post-high school uh, beers, so uh, excited to do that one. Excited to have Tom on as a guest. And that will be coming out soon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's been a, it's been a slice. It'll be fun to chat again next week. Hopefully, uh, Curtis will be able to join us too. We'll have the the whole crew again. And uh, I think uh, we're hoping to also get maybe an episode with a special guest. We want to talk about a particular comedy classic, so we'll be uh, revisiting that as well too. Otherwise, uh, anything else to mention or ready to go about our day? It's been a beautiful Saturday. Time yeah. to uh, I'm gonna make some breakfast. I'm gonna make myself a little egg sandwich, I think, and. Uh, Maybe throw in a movie before uh, before DPO. We'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, Sweet. otherwise, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again next but week. Why do I always feel like I'm in the twilight zone, and I always feel like.